Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Over the last several weeks, farmers in India have staged mass demonstrations to protest new government agricultural policies. The farmers say these new laws would be financially ruinous and allow large corporations to dictate the price of agricultural goods. These laws, which were passed in September, were championed by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his right-wing Hindu nationalist party, the BJP. Now, the apparently ever-growing size of these farmer protests have brought worldwide attention to seemingly arcane changes in Indian agricultural law. On the line with me to help understand the significance of these farmer protests in India is Michael Kugelman, the Senior Associate for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson Center. We kick off discussing the substance of these laws before having a broader conversation about the domestic and international implications of this protest movement. And I should note that this subject was recommended to me by a number of listeners who emailed me and suggested that I do an episode on the India Farmer Protest. So thank you for reaching out. And if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics you'd like me to cover, please send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hitting me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I love hearing from you guys. All right, now here is my conversation with Michael Kugelman of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. What these laws do is they deregulate and liberalize the agricultural economy in India. And specifically what that entails uh, in this case is that um, for, for quite some time, farmers in India, and particularly those in the states that have been protesting, Haryana, uh, Punjab, Uttar Pradesh, they have received what is known as a minimum support price um, for, cro for crops that they sell to government markets. So basically what that means is that um, uh, farmers always had the, the assurance of knowing that they would get a minimum price um, from the government if they sold their crops at these regulated markets overseen by the government. Um, but what these, law, what these new laws do is that they essentially um, broaden the scope, so to speak, so that um, anyone can be in a position to um, buy crops from these farmers. So in other words, you could have private buyers. It's not just government buyers that are there. 
And so, you know, this is one of these things that each side has a, has a diametrically opposing view. So the Indian government's contention is that this is great. It's going to give farmers more options. It's going to give buyers more options. And it's just going to, um, you know, make the um, uh, agricultural markets bigger and, and, and less regulated, more flexible, and therefore more profitable, and so on. But uh, the farmers that oppose these laws believe that this is going to straightjacket them and that it will essentially make them vulnerable to what they believe to be the predations of corporate farming interests that, uh, you know, according to these, many of these farmers could entail uh, private interests banding together, working together and trying to uh, artificially lower prices so that farmers wouldn't get as much for their crops. And uh, these farmers uh, that, that don't like the laws also worry that um, it'll be easier for them to um, fall into these contract farming arrangements, uh, which is something that they that they really um, worry about. So, you know, they're, they're complicated, these laws, but it's one of these things that, um, you know, the government can say, well, look, we really need to deregulate and liberalize an agricultural sector that's really been struggling. They can make a good argument for that. But at the same time, the farmers have their own very real reasons to be concerned, particularly because, you know, and we could talk about this, um, so many farmers in India are really struggling in a sector that's not doing well, um, poverty rates uh, for farmers have really gone up in recent years. And so for them to think that they're no longer going to have that, that safety net, that they're no longer going to get that guaranteed price from, from government markets, it's very, it's, it's very, it makes them very fearful about their plight. So if these laws were introduced in September of 2020, why was it only several months later in December and then January and now in February that these protests began to pick up steam? Yeah, well, the, the protests had begun not too long after the, the laws were passed, uh, back in November, as I recall. That's when you started to have um, protests. But you know, I think that um, there had been some efforts at negotiations, um, and they they simply failed. Uh, and you know, I think that that the farmers concluded that uh, the government wasn't willing to uh, do anything to um, to walk back these laws or anything like that. And I think that really galvanized them and uh, sort of made the protest get bigger, so to speak. Though, you know, I should say to its credit. Uh, in its defense, the Indian government has tried to accommodate um, these farmers, and from an earlier from an early point, um, for for instance, the government has has offered to um, delay the implementation of these new laws for up to eighteen months. But you know, these these farmers are so dead set against these laws that they wouldn't settle even for a delayed phase out uh, or implementation of these laws. But yeah, to answer your question, you're right. I mean, these laws were passed a long time ago, but I think that uh, soon after they were passed. You know, many farmers assume that there could be an opportunity to to negotiate and try to work something out that would make them not as concerned. But they concluded that the government was was not going to change direction, even if it was willing to delay them. And that's when the protests began to build. Do we know like who these farmers are and like what political constituencies they might represent? Yeah, so I, I think that we could describe we could accurately describe these protests as mass protests. Uh, you know, as I think I'd said earlier. They are, this is not a nationwide protest movement. Uh, at least at this point, these protests are uh, relatively uh, localized and restricted to several states, um, states that happen to be in the vicinity of New Delhi. We're talking again about Haryana and Punjab and uh, Uttar Pradesh. Um, so it's been easy for these protesters to actually come into New Delhi and protest, which they've done. 
But, uh, you know, we're talking, I think that um, there was one of the biggest protests happened on, on Republic, the Indian Republic Day holiday on January 26th in New Delhi. And there, there were, there were um, it's safe to say that there were um, tens of thousands, if not several hundred thousand protesters that poured into the, uh, into the capital, many of them driving tractors. So it was quite, it was quite a sight, um, to say the least. Um, you know, it, it's hard to pin down the political allegiances of these, of these farmers, but what is notable, and this is actually something that's caused some controversy for many in India, is that um, many, if not most of these farmers are from the Sikh community. Um, and, um, you know, they, again, they, they live in these, these three neighboring states, uh, near, near New Delhi. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the Indian government at times has tried to malign these protesters as affiliated with a, uh, a separatist movement that um, is not active right now in India. But uh, essentially in the past, there have been efforts on the part of, of Sikh militants to um, call for a, a separatist uh, movement, a, a new homeland for, for Sikhs. It's called the Khalistan movement. And um Back on January 26th, when you had that protest in New Delhi, um, some of the, though these were mainly peaceful protests, there was a small group of them that um, broke away from the rest of the crowd and marched out to the Red Fort, which is the iconic uh, landmark in New Delhi, unfurled a, uh, a, a flag representing Sikh uh, interests. And you know this is something that the Indian government jumped on, even though there was no indication that this had anything to do with, with separatism. But the, the government or some elements of the government do worry about uh, these these farmers or some of them at least just because you know they represent a um, a community that has been uh, involved in these efforts to to push for this the separatist um, uh, stand but again I think that overstates it I think that India is mischaracterizing things this is about farmers rights and it's about livelihood it's not about separatism at all I guess to what extent did that government response blaming Sikh separatism to a degree on these protests reflect a broader sense of, or the broader invocation, I should say, of Hindu nationalism that this government has used over and over again since coming to power, you know, many years ago, uh, seeking to use Hindu nationalism to its own, you know, electoral advantage, its own political advantage. Is this sort of part of that story? Yes. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I do think that the the Indian government is is exploiting its Hindu nationalist agenda, which, as you know, it has been pushing out very hard. Which again entails elevating the status of of the Hindu majority in society and politics. Um, and yes, I think that th- this government has been willing to resort to very overt communal language um, from very senior officials quite a lot of times and. You know, we saw something similar play out uh, some months back when you had another case of new laws that were passed that uh, a certain community didn't like. So, for instance, you had um, these new, these updated citizenship laws that were perceived to discriminate against Muslims. And so many, though certainly not uh, all, but many of those taking to the streets to protest these laws were were members of the Indian Muslim community. And, you know, there were some, some dog whistling and some... Uh, uh, some more overt um, communal language coming from Indian officials trying to malign these protesters, um, right, describing them as anti-national, as Pakistanis, that type of thing. So it's a similar dynamic. And of course, here in this case, you're dealing with, with Sikhs, Sikhs this time. Um, so I, I do think it is very unfortunate that the government has responded this way. 
But uh, though I should say at the same time, I mean, the government has also talked about wanting to, to work with the farmers and, and try to find some sort of resolution. But, you know, when it resorts to these to this communal um, language um, and blames these folks, blame, you know, accuses them of separatism, even though there's no re- reason to think they have anything to do with that, that I think is very troubling and is only going to galvanize these protesters even more. So, so far, um, you know, this protest movement doesn't seem to be abating. I mean, we're speaking in the start of February, almost the middle of February, and there are still, you know, protests are are still happening. Um, What would you judge to be the political impact of these protests so far? Yeah, um, you know, I think to get to your very first point there, um, it is actually quite notable that these protests have continued to sustain themselves and maintain momentum. Because, you know, back in the 26th of January, when you had that huge protest in New Delhi that turned violent in some cases, many thought that that was going to deprive the the movement of, uh, of momentum just because, you know, there had been splits between the more you know, the, the militant farmers that ended up uh, ramming tra- tractors over police barricades and converging on the fort, on the Red Fort, and those that, that that opposed that completely. And there was concerns that there were splits in the movement and so on. But clearly, that hasn't been the case at all. They're they're going strong. So in terms of the political impact, I would not overstate the political impact of these protests. And that's because, you know, the Modi government remains very popular, particularly because Narendra Modi himself remains extremely popular. And he's this is a leader who's been in power for uh, almost seven years now, and um, he has faced a number of challenges. Uh, you know, he's come out with some pretty controversial laws. Uh, one that comes to mind is a, is a sudden demonetization uh, policy. He's come out with laws that backfired and caused a lot of uh, uh, concern. And yet, you know, I describe him as a Teflon man, which is a term that many used to describe Ronald Reagan back in the day that, you know, things happen to him, but he manages to get over it and his popularity remains intact. One main reason for that is that there is no viable political opposition on a national level in India. So, you know, it's not like you'd have one or two major opposition parties that could try to, um, you know, exploit what's going on and, and sort of hold that against Modi. So he doesn't have to worry about that. Also, I should say, you know, I I should say just just to that point, before we spoke, I I was Googling around to see what the composition of the Lok Sabha, the the Indian parliament is. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sure enough, uh, Narendra Modi's BJP party is like an overwhelming majority in the parliament and elections are not until like, what, 2024? Yeah, exactly. So he's got a few more years in power. Um, so you're looking at someone that's that's able to maintain popularity because there's no viable opposition. People, a lot of Indians genuinely like him. They feel that he's a bold, unconventional leader willing to take risks and do things differently than in the past. Someone who's perceived as not being corrupt like previous leaders. So he has all that going for him. Also, these protests, at least at this point, they are still relatively localized. We're talking about a, you know huge numbers of farmers, but the movement has not spread yet. But, you know, that said, um, farmers in India are a very important political constituency, as they are in so many countries. Um, and so I think that, you know, Modi is in a tough spot, right? Because if he if he decides to dig in and push out these laws, no matter the opposition from these, these, uh, these protesters, I think that could risk really... Um, galvanizing the, the movement even more and allowing it to uh, to spread and become more of a nationwide thing. And that could make Modi a bit more vulnerable. Um, but if he were to back away and give in to the farmers, and there certainly is a precedent for that in India, where again, the farmers are a key constituency. If he gives in, if he, if he, if he cancels the laws, 
Well, that would squander a very um, uh, useful and important opportunity to try to liberalize an agricultural economy that really needs a shot in the arm. So he's in a tough spot no matter what he does. Are there any discernible international implications to this protest movement that you could point to? I mean, we're speaking a day after Modi and Biden had their first uh, sort of official call. And I read the Indian readout of the call. I read the White House readout of the call and none mention the protests. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, if, if this matters, if this incident, if these protests matter beyond the borders of India in any way. I mean, I think it matters to the extent that India is, is widely perceived to be an important country in the sense of its size and its, its clout um, and its contributions to the economy and its role on the global stage. It's no superpower, but it's, 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 it's a growing power for sure. And I think that given that you have a country that's experiencing this large sustained um, protest movement that's trying to put the government on the offensive, I think that's on the defensive, pardon me, I think that's significant. Also, I think that looking at this from a Washington lens, um, you know, the Biden administration has emphasized that it's going to really, um, uh, it's going to emphasize the strengthening of democracy and rights overseas. And, you know, the, res- the Indian response on some levels to these protests has um, not been particularly democratic. Uh, several journalists in India have been accused of sedition for how they covered the protests. Um, the, there were um, internet um, blocks that the government imposed where the protests were taking place. And so many have wondered if the Biden administration, which like many previous U.S. administrations, thinks very highly of India and wants to move the relationship forward, if this Biden administration, which puts this emphasis on democracy promotion, would actually uh, issue any type of public comments or statements about India's response. And indeed, as you know, the, 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 the readout of Biden's call with Modi suggests that they didn't come up, which is not a surprise. Though it is notable that um, a reporter um, asked a State Department spokesperson uh, recently for the sta- State Department's views on these protests. And the State Department spokesperson did say that they were, you know, we really don't like, they're not in so many words, but they said that we're a bit concerned about these internet blocks. So mm. I think that's sort of the question. And then, of course, there's the whole the broader side to this, the fact that you know, you've had large numbers of international celebrities that have chosen to weigh in on these protests for several days, which is sort of a whole other interesting dimension to this story. Yeah, it's funny. I wasn't even going to bring that up. But now in your response to my question about Biden, it occurs to me that perhaps the most notable international you know, reaction to this has been from Rihanna and the reaction from of Re- from Rihanna's tweet by India was fairly significant and kind of you know, shocking to see. Yeah, well, I mean, India, India's government, uh, particularly the current Indian government, but Indian governments in general um, tend to be very sensitive to outside commentary and especially outside critical commentary about internal affairs, about domestic politics in India. So I think that, you know, there was there was that. And I think there was just concern in New Delhi, knowing that a, you know, a, a really famous individual, Rihanna, had decided to send out a tweet about this, knowing that that would mean that a lot more people would soon be talking about it. Um, I, honestly, I, I would not uh, pass myself off as a, uh, as a Rihanna expert by any means, but I am aware that she is a globally engaged uh, celebrity in the sense that she often comments about um, uh, global issues ranging from poverty to climate change and other things. So in that sense, it's not too much of a surprise that she uh, that she tweeted about it. And, you know, after she did a number of other celebrities, some of them really famous, like Susan Sarandon, 
Others, not so much, like Kyle Kuzma, the NBA uh, player. I guess if you're an NBA fan, he would be a household name. But um, you know, for the Indian government, I find this very interesting. The Indian government, or should I say Indian officials, have suggested that there's actually a global conspiracy here, um, that these celebrities were tweeting or talking about these protests because they are being paid by certain outfits, including those that may be tied to the Khalistan uh, movement. These are allegations that some Indian officials have made. Now, for me, the thought of Rihanna uh, colluding with Khalistani, uh, with with the Khalistan movement, it sounds, it beggars belief. But um, at any rate, this is what the Indian government has has said. Uh, my view is that, um, you know, farmers' protests, uh, they resonate overseas, uh, particularly when they're large and, and sustained just because they, you know, they get at issues that I think affect many people or, or sort of galvanize people, whether you're talking about, you know, the, the, the plight of small farmers from a social justice angle or, you know, climate change issues uh, associated with these farmers, that type of thing. So in that sense, I'm not all that surprised. I mean, I'm a bit surprised that Rihanna weighed in, but, you know, it's not terribly surprising given that you're looking at issues that resonate on many ways around the world. Yeah, I like I would imagine like a global left might consolidate around the farmers in the sense that, you know, they're fighting against like neoliberal policies of privatization of of mm-hmm. of the uh, farming sector against, you know, big farming conglomerates. You have these like kind of small scrappy farmers just trying to make ends meet with government subsidies. So I, it, I could see that sort of resonating to a certain extent among sort of left of center, left-wing people around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, these are causes that are, that are taken up a lot. So someone like you know, the fact that Greta Thunberg, the, the famous climate activist, she weighed in, um, you know, these are, these issues are important to her because she thinks like many of these farmers that you know, these new laws will make it easier for corporate interests to come in. And uh, that couldn't, that's not good for the environment, according to what, what she thinks. So, so yeah, I agree with you. I mean, for, I think this, this is seen as by, by progressives and those that oppose uh, capitalism and corporatization. This is a cause celebra and people want to pay attention to it. So what will you be looking towards in the coming weeks and months that might suggest to you how this situation may evolve or shake out? Well, you know, the, the farmers have, uh, they're really, they're doubling down, they're digging in. Um, they don't appear that they're ready to make a compromise. So what I'm going to be looking for is, is what the government's messaging is. Um, you know, will the government offer to make other concessions short of um, walking back the laws? I think it would be unlikely for the government to walk back the laws. But how intent will the government be to try to do whatever it can to, um, accommodate uh, these these farmers. It's not going to be easy, um, and you know the the farm the, the government, as I have said, has not necessarily helped its cause by at times maligning the protest uh, the protesters and so on. But I'm going to be looking to see how the Indian government is reacting because they're they're going to be more protests, and I think that they the, the, there's no plan to change the policy on the part of the protest leaders. So I think that the the ball is really in the court of the Indian government to see how what it does next in the coming days. Uh, Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael. That was great. And I should say he's been on this show several times, and I thank him for being so readily available to talk with me about all issues in South Asia. 
And you should definitely follow him on Twitter, and I'll post a link to his handle in the show notes of this episode. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.